Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Painting and taking on all the plates to paint to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. As you hopefully already know, January 1st, 2019 was something special in the United States and that it was uh, the very first January 1st in over two decades where old works were reclaimed by the public. That is, uh, most works that were first uh, published and registered with a copyright in 1923 were brought back into the public domain uh, rather than having to stay locked up. As you hopefully also already know, uh, when those works were first created, copyright law only lasted at most 56 years and required a renewal after 28, which was a step that most copyright holders actually failed to take. However, thanks to multiple changes in copyright law over the years, including the uh, somewhat awful Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act of 1998, those works were locked up for much, much longer than originally intended. Uh, This is not a good thing by any stretch of the imagination, though I guess it depends on your perspective and where you sit on these things. However, uh, despite some early noises, uh, the legacy copyright players did not even attempt to extend copyrights again uh, last year, uh, almost certainly because they knew that they'd lose, uh, though they take issue with that characterization, (laughs) and that they would also look really bad in the process. Uh, And this means that nearly all works from 1923 are now really in the public domain where they belong. Uh, And while it's easy to lament how long it took to get them there, it's also important to celebrate that these works are available and that anyone can build on them. Uh, Indeed, uh, that's the reason that we at TechTurt, in partnership with... uh, Our friend Randy Lubin, who's been on the podcast before, launched a public domain game jam specifically for those newly public domain works. Uh, And you can find out about that on on TechDirt if you hadn't seen it uh, already, though that uh, game jam is ending a couple days after this podcast is released. Um, There are a number of other celebrations as well, uh, and those include a huge event that was held just this past Friday at the Internet Archive in San Francisco, entitled The Grand Reopening of the Public Domain. And it was a fun day uh, that I got to attend. It kicked off with a bunch of demo stations regarding public domain works, mostly from 1923, and then with various talks and presentations in the afternoon. It was uh, a lot of fun and uh, a really interesting day. So today for the podcast, I wanted to talk about that event and the overall concept of the grand reopening of the public domain with the two people who helped organize that event, uh, and that is Leela Bailey from the Internet Archive and Tim Vollmer from Creative Commons. So welcome, guys. Hi there. Sure. So let's start uh, talking a little bit about the event and kind of what was the thought process that you guys went through in putting together the event? Well, I think we sort of realized, you know, even a few years ago that this was a possibility that 2019 <laughs> was sort of the target date of of the 20-year expiration of the Copyright Term Extension Act. And, you know, I think both of our organizations, Creative Commons and Air Archive, have been working on these issues around improving access 
to, to digital materials, improving access to the commons in various ways, you know, Creative Commons, especially through the development of, of the licenses. And actually, of course, we can talk a little bit about the history of kind of uh, one reason why Creative Commons came into being <laughs> was yeah. because of this, this you know, ex- this last extension. And I think we just really wanted to bring together a community of like-minded organizations, of people, of projects that are sort of working around this civil society, public interest space in the Bay Area and also beyond um, as a way just to kind of actually celebrate that things are actually going back into the public domain. Um, showcase, you know, projects that we've been working on and that other organizations have been working on and really kind of use this as a springboard, I think, to kind of see like, okay, what's possible now going into the future in terms of collaborations or new kinds of creative product projects because, you know, we've kind of just having this last, people are calling it a drought, you know, the 20-year drought of the public domain. And every January 1st, it kind of rolls around and everyone's sort of like, oh, yeah, well, what could have been? Well, another <laughs> year it goes by that nothing goes into the public domain in the United States. So, um, so I don't know. I mean, that, that was kind of my original thinking, like, let's bring people together and, like, let's, let's try to celebrate this. We know there's, you know, maybe that the policy sphere around copyright is not very productive in other sorts of areas, but this is one good thing that's happening. So let's bring people together and let's celebrate. Yeah, and um, I think, I mean, just to give a little bit of the, like, secret history (laughs) of the event, um, you know, Tim and I, when we initially started planning this, um, we weren't sure how much interest we'd get. Um, The public domain kind of feels like this really obscure, legal, legalistic concept. Um, And, you know, we we figured there would be other events um, in other places and we would be one of many and that we would just sort of do a little local thing for maybe like 100 people. Um, And it turns out um, people were really excited. like weirdly excited. I think it felt really good um, to have some good news in the copyright space with everything that's kind of going on in Europe. And, um, you know, I think there are a lot of questions about where the internet is going and all these things. So it just kind of felt, I think, really good for this community of folks who've, you know, been working on these issues for some of them, like three decades. Um, you know, to come together and just really experience and celebrate our culture. Um, And this idea that, you know, yeah, this belongs to all of us. And we do care about this. This is a really big deal. And so I thought it was just really remarkable how many people came together, were willing to fly in from far-flung places to come together to to have this moment yeah i mean i i think you know as an attendee it, it it was a really fun event and it was very much you know as it was designed to be very much a celebration um and you know i, I what was funny is you know in the days leading up to january 1st and then even after it i, I saw a few of kind of the um 
how do I phrase this that won't get me in trouble? Um, the, 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 the usual voices who are perhaps critical of the way that, that I and, and um, potentially you guys view copyright and the way it, it works on a policy level. Um, they were sort of, I felt sort of mocking uh, the fact that these works were finally going to the public domain and that people were excited about it. Um, and yet, you know, the thing that, that I saw on Friday and that I've seen, you know, this entire month as people are talking about the public domain is the fact that like, you know, people are really excited about being able to access culture and, and to create new things. And it's, you know, it's really a, a celebration of culture and creativity, which are the things that the, you know, people who claim to be copyright supporters, you know, always say that they support. And then when you have this situation where, you know, we're, you know, opening up this whole, you know, a huge batch of, of, uh, you know, culture that can, that we can create more with and people are excited about it. Suddenly they want to sort of brush it off. as not a big deal. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's sort of this interesting contrast between, you know, who's really supportive of culture and who maybe is not, <laughs> right. uh, it's the diplomatic way I'll put it. Well, I think there's also this consequence that, you know, some people look at this stuff like, oh, look at this old moldy things from 1923. And it's yeah. just like, well, yeah, that's because the law has gotten away, <laughs> gotten <laughs> yeah. away from us in that time period. And yeah, only these things that are, you know, almost 100 years old now are finally coming into the public domain when we can actually sort of re-envision them, you know, repurpose them, remix them for, for new types of creativity, you know. There, there's this saying like creativity always builds on the past, and now we're finally getting access to these, <laughs> yeah. to these things. And something that was really interested, interesting to me in this space, you know, after January 1st, we've seen a lot of articles come out. You know, people actually interested in this, writing about it, these, and, and documenting the new types of work that are coming into the public domain now. And I think that's great because it's, you know, it improves access. But actually what I'm almost more interested in is the creative projects that have sprung up over the years yeah. that are utilizing public domain materials, like the LibriVoxes of the world, which are like recording, volunteers recording audiobooks of public domain works for people that, you know, can't read or, or, or are blind or visually impaired, or they just prefer to get access to creativity in that way. Things like that. Um, other sorts of projects that are building community. You know, at the event, we had Cheyenne Homan, who was the uh, director of the Free Music Archive. She actually talked about several different public domain music projects where, you know, individuals from around the world would take public domain audio tracks and remix them and create new works. Um, sometimes they ran it as a contest, sometimes not, but really creating connections between people um, as a way of fostering community around um, this, 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 these pieces of content, you know, and that's super exciting. And, and because now that the public domain has been reopened, you know, those projects will be fueled, you know, year after year. It's not just yeah. like, you know, they have to utilize really old stuff, you know, every year now on January 1st, they will have to take like that year's class and, and build new things and create community around it. I think that's really exciting. Yeah, I, I, I think so too. And I think that's, that is part of the excitement though. I've heard some people say that, you know, the joke for, for a long time had been that, you know, 
sort of the reason that we got the the Sonny Bono copyright term extension act was very much because of Disney uh, and very much about protecting Mickey Mouse. And, you know, there's this sort of famous Mickey Mouse chart, which shows that every time Mickey Mouse gets closer to to having the, the copyright expire and, and go into the public domain, suddenly, um, you know, the, the term extension happens in some form or another. Um, and so some people thought that, you know, now that, that the 1923 works were finally going to the public domain, that meant that, that Disney, uh, you know, was going to, to lose the copyright on Mickey Mouse. But that's not true. It's, there's another, I think, five years before uh-huh. Mickey Mouse goes into the public domain. So some people have argued that we should expect another attempt at extending <laughs> copyright right. in, in the next few years. I think that's unlikely. Um, for the reasons I said before. I, yeah. So I think, I think that's right. Um, in terms of legal weeds, mm-hmm. like getting a standalone, uh, like a standalone copyright term extension thing that's not happening in the midst of some other bigger thing just seems really unlikely. Like remember the way it happened in the nineties was because it was all part of the DMCA. Right. Um, was kind of tacked on to like a much larger project um, of copyright, quote unquote, reform, I guess we could call it that. <laughs> um, but, you know, the idea of doing like standalone copyright term extension seems unlikely. And it just sort of seems like a lot of these fights have moved to trade yeah. agreements. Um, and so we are seeing copyright terms getting extended in places like Canada because of the new... NAFTA, right. right? The new re- renegotiated NAFTA, which I don't under—I don't even know what the status of that is at this point. I think it's all just sitting around and waiting for various approvals. Um, but if it does go through, then they will be life plus seventy, just like the United States. Um, you know, so I think the mechanisms for that are really different yeah. now, um, and it's kind of unclear how much more they really have to gain. Um, right. Well, that's, I mean, that's super interesting, too, because, you know, things that were discussed leading up to, you know, the grand reopening was we actually had statements, you know, from groups like RIA and MPA that sort of in the last few months have kind of indicated, yeah, we're not really interested, you know, <laughs> in copyright term right. extension. But then you say, yeah, the policy around copyright is, is just being made through, like, trade now. Yeah. And... um I wonder what the calculus is between, you know, big content because, you know, they can just get, they'll get pushed, pushed through, through trade. And we know that those, those agreements and those negotiations are, are not done with public input. You know, they're done behind closed doors and, you know, you avoid most of the, um, most of the outcry from, you know, say past things like Sopa Pippo, when that came up, there was a huge outcry, you know, and eventually, you know, advocates were able to, to to stop that in its tracks. But I think we've been less, quite a bit less effective in trying to intervene in in trade negotiations, just because civil society advocates and the public interest aren't invited to the table, you know. And and maybe the RAs of the world right. and the MPA just think like, well, you know, good, we can just get what we want in in those venues, and we don't have to worry about sort of national copyright legislation. Right. And, and yeah, I mean, I think that that's a big deal, certainly something we've written about a bunch. Um, and it's interesting because, uh, you know, I think that there has been certainly some outcry. I mean, you know, there was ACTA, um, which was an attempt to do a, a trade agreement specifically around like 
copyright and, and counterfeiting issues that, you know, more or less did, you know, fail to, to, to be turned into a real agreement in part because of loud outcry over these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was, there were definitely concerns about like the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement because this, this was a component Though there were lots of other concerns about that agreement as well. Um, but, you know, what's funny to me is that, um, you know, the, the RIAA and MPAA um, and, and similar groups have really spent, you know, the past 25 years using this process of perhaps longer, but it's sort of become a real focus of theirs in the past 25 years to use trade agreements to push through what they want and then, you know, go back to other countries and be like, look, these guys are doing it. You right. have to too. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, in the the new NAFTA, which, um, you know, it's like whatever, the USCMA or something. USMCA, maybe. That's what it is. But it depends on which country you're in, because when you talk to Canadians, it's the Canadian (laughs) Mexican. I mean, they put the C first. Well, so I I mean, what what somebody pointed out is like, you know, they missed an opportunity. They should have started with the C, because then you could have C A M U S, which is, you know, Camus, the Camus agreement. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that is an acronym opportunity. Yes, exactly. Exactly. But, um, You know, get your existential exactly. Here. <laughs> it's so perfect in so many ways. Um, but but you know, one of the things that is in that agreement, which you know, I think a lot of people celebrate, is that there is a sort of intermediary liability protection element that was included in that agreement. Yeah. And what's funny is, yeah. is then I saw like the RIAA people whining about like how dare they put this <laughs> into an international trade agreement? It's like right. you guys spent. Oh, really? You don't want to do intermediary liability yeah. uh, in trade agreements, really? <laughs> exactly. It was... Huh. How'd you get the DMCA done, I wonder? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and so, I mean, yeah. for people who are listening and who don't know, like, you know, the, the RIAA and, and other people have, like, flat out admitted that the way they got the DMCA done, they tried to get Congress to pass that law originally, and it failed. And then, as they said, and I'm this is almost a direct quote, you know, like, we ran to Geneva to get it into a trade agreement <laughs> to then go back to, to D.C. and say now we have this international obligation, which, you know, they put in themselves to get Congress to do what it didn't want to do in the first place. Um, so, like, the fact that they would then whine that somebody else is doing the exact same thing that they pioneered seems a little bit hypocritical. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> a little background for, for the, the – the, yes, the three of us on this podcast have, have lived these things for, for many years, but I'm assuming not everybody listening. Has. Um, so let, let's 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 talk. Let's go back to to sort of the the positives of 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 last Friday's event and, and some of the ex, the excitement around it. Um, and so you know there were I think you know what was fun and nicer all these different examples of you know these works that are suddenly available again and that people can can do stuff with. Um, well, now I'm realizing I was just saying we're going back to the fun and good stuff, and I'm actually not going to do that because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> one of the things that was was very early on was um, uh, this guy Michael Wolf, who was talking about uh, works that didn't make it uh, into the public domain in that they basically, uh, you know, disappeared from from uh-huh. the world between 1923 and today and don't exist and might otherwise have existed if they had gone into the public domain earlier. And I think that's that's a big concern that doesn't get nearly enough attention. Yeah, as as like 
now that I'm really much more ensconced in the library yeah. world, um, working at the Internet Archive, um, I've come to understand this idea of um, obsolete formats and formats that just kind of fall apart in your hands yeah. um, if you you know if you touch them, right? So uh, the Mike Wolf's presentation focused a lot on film. Um, but one of the formats that my boss, Brewster Kale, is particularly passionate about are um, 78 RPM records, yeah. um, which are these shellac records that predate the vinyl LPs. And they are brittle. And if you drop them, they will yeah. shatter. Um, and so one of the things that, you know, we have been working on is finding ways to um, preserve these works before they are gone. Like if we were to wait until 2067, which is, uh, the date that these works were set to, um, go into the public domain prior to the music modernization act, which is actually, um, is some more yeah. good news around the public domain. Um, you know, if we waited till 2067, these things would not, they would not right. be there they would be gone. Um, so I think that is a really important concept. Um, and one of the roles that, you know, libraries have and archives have and museums, right. These cultural institutions have historically played to, to sort of shepherd these works through, um, when a lot of times, you know, the rights holders aren't interested in doing yeah. that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've heard people call it the 20th century black hole, too, you know, and, and yeah. Brewster's presentation, it was so stark. You know, he showed a graph of of things going into the public domain based on year and and how that correlates with whether those things can be commercially available or yeah. who's, who's actually taking advantage of them. And, of course, 1923, it goes way up and then a huge drop-off, yeah. you know, until just recently. So. I think it's a big, big problem with regard to um, the issues of orphan works too. You know, because the yep. the owners of these copyrighted works becomes there wasn't documented well at the time, or you sort of lose it over time, especially if it hasn't been uh, the records haven't been upkept very well. So, yeah, it's just such a such a shame that you just you're losing like the entire second half of the 20th century in terms of access to culture. Yeah, yeah, that's it's a huge issue and. Um, I think, you know, calling or just sort of calling it the orphan works actually, I think, does a disservice because it limits it to the ones where, you know, we don't know who own the rights. But actually, as it turns out, a lot of works, a lot of works, especially in the musical world, um, are owned. Um, we know who own them. They're just not they're just not oh, out right. there. Um, there is no market for them. There's no market for these like old um you know, singles from, let's say, like super old hillbilly music, which is the precursor to to country music, um, or these other works from the twenties, thirties, forties, right? Um, there's just there's no market for it, and so they don't bother to make it available, even if they do own it. Um, and a lot of that is true for books as well. So I think you know it's it's an orphan work problem, but more importantly, it's a commercial availability problem like they're these things just aren't out there even if somebody owns them a lot of the time yeah um, so it's it's bigger than you know sort of this narrow idea of orphans. yeah yeah and, and again just for people who don't follow this stuff closely orphan work being a, a, a case where you, 
the copyright holder is unknown or unreachable in some form. But but as you're pointing out, there are works where that you know the copyright holder is clearly known and and reachable, but they are unwilling to make the work available just because there's it's not viable. And in fact, I mean, you know, one of the things around this. Um, that I, I mentioned in the opening is the idea that originally you had to, well, one, you had to register your copyright, and then two, you had to renew it after 28 years. And um, and I, I've shown this chart a few times on TechDirt. You know, if you look, I, I think, you know, it, it was true of any year that you looked at, but I think the chart that I had seen was from like 1954 or something, and it showed the number of works that were renewed after 28 years. And it was different based on, you know, whether it was film or books or you know, or, or photographs or whatever. Um, and there were different renewal rates, but for the most part, like very, very few people renewed. Uh -huh. And so, and it was not expensive and it was not difficult to renew your copyright. So what, what became clear is like most copyright holders don't see any commercial value in retaining the copyright after 28 years. And yet, we extended the copyright to way beyond 28 years, right. uh, even though there was no clear evidence that that you know benefited anyone other than a very very tiny uh, you know microcosm of of copyright holders. Um, Right, the, the large commercial. Yeah, players. and even then, you know, I mean, there are cases of even you know the large commercial holders who who hold copyright and don't do anything with it and don't make it available. That's right. Um, and yeah. and so and I, I think that's a concern. The the um, Tim, you mentioned the in in Brewster's presentation, he shows this chart with the the black hole, uh -huh. um, and that chart actually, uh, if if people want to see it, it was put together by a researcher named Paul Heald, um, which is and he's done a few different. He's like researched that particular chart from like six different angles, <laughs> so so like looking at like different things like books on Amazon or like movies on some other place. Like it, there's a whole bunch of different ways that he sort of put together that chart. I don't even remember which one Brewster was using in particular. Um, it was the books okay, on Amazon, the, book, the, the ones you right. can buy on Amazon. And, and which I think yeah. was the first one that Paul Heald put together. And yeah. he's since done it again and again from, from you know looking at it from different angles. And it's always the same thing. And somebody else um, basically did the same thing in the EU. Uh, I don't believe it was Paul. It was another researcher basically did the same thing and found like the exact same thing, that you have this huge gaping hole of works that are in copyright but completely unavailable. Um, and then the second things, you know, everything is in the public domain, all of it becomes available. And it's funny, too, because, like, you know, it's it does become available commercially, showing that there is at least some interest in, in you know, in, in putting these works out commercially um, even after. But the more important point, I think, and that gets back to the whole reason why we were celebrating stuff, is that, you know, one of the reasons why you know, it becomes valuable again, in some senses, is because people can do stuff with it, because yeah. people can be creative, and, and they can come up with different ways to make it commercially valuable, that the original copyright holder, you know, didn't didn't think of, or didn't care enough to think about. Right. Uh, and right. The way I often talk about this is like, when I try to explain what the public domain is, and why it matters, I say, you know how you've seen like 100 different uh, Jane Austen remakes. <laughs> yeah. That's because it's the public domain and anyone can do yeah. that. Nobody has veto power over doing that. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, and, and this, this came up during the, the presentations as well. Um, you know, the, 
if you look at so many Disney movies, for example, uh, <laughs> you know, over and over again, they are using public domain works. Um, amusingly, some of those works, you know, much younger than the, the 95 right. years uh, when when Disney decided to, to turn them into to something new. And, and, you know, what is absolutely true is that in every one of those cases where Disney took the took a public domain work and created their own version, they did a very creative updating of it um, mm -hmm. and, and in very compelling ways. And like, you know, you know, for example, like. Pinocchio, right? If you've read the original Pinocchio, it's very, very different, extraordinarily different than the Disney uh, movie of it. But they're, you know, and, and but they're both interesting and they're both culturally right. relevant. Um, yeah, and, Dis and I don't. Yeah, Disney uses the public domain as much or more than anyone else. The problem is they just want to pull the ladder up behind them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is an unfortunate thing that that does seem to happen with intellectual property uh, protections is not just th in this case but it's a very very clear case with with Disney Disney using it and but like you know the 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 whole arc of of Disney's success you just see public domain story after public domain story mm -hmm. and and so you know i i think the more people realize like well you know if we want more new classics created out of these things the more availability of public domain material the better right Absolutely. But, yeah. Well, it'll be interesting. I, I guess we should hold a contest to see, you know, which newly public domain thing Disney actually <laughs> decides to turn into a new. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, All right. Take yeah. Lots. Yeah. I would love to. Hey, I would love to see the animated short of Yes, We Have. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes. That, that, of course, being one of the newly public domain works uh, and and a, right. a classic song by any any definition. Um, so, and I, I should note, uh, you mentioned very briefly in passing the the Music Modernization Act, um, and and there are a couple of interesting things about that that are worth discussing at least. Um, one is that. Um, uh, there's this whole mess that's not worth getting into the details of <laughs> around the copyright of sound recordings um, and how that was a complete disaster area that was, as you mentioned, going to keep certain sound recordings in you know, covered by copyright until 2067, um, even if they had been created well before 1923, um, which is mm -hmm. which is crazy in its own right. Um, that is, and so that's now been pretty much fixed with the Music Modernization Act that basically will bring all of those into um, under federal copyright. Uh, but there's there's this sort of transition period, meaning that some of the works, some of the sound recordings that that did that were published in 1923 are technically not in the public domain yet, but will be soon. Right. We've got a three year right. window um, until uh, I, I can't exactly remember what the buckets are, but like, I think it's like 1923 to maybe somewhere late in the 1920s. They all go in the public domain in like three years. And then like five years after that, we get up to like the 1940s. Yeah. And then after that, you know, there's another maybe 10 year window and then a bunch of things come in. And then I think once you get into the 50s, that stuff is all going to stay in the public domain right. until 2067. But yeah, so it's this sort of weird fix where they've got like these tranches of years kind of all coming in together, um, which apparently the, you know, the rationale from the, the music industry is, frankly, they don't they don't know what they own. <laughs> um, 
And um, it was very, 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 very hard for them. Way too burdensome. Way too hard for them to figure out what they own, <laughs> to have a rolling public domain that, that uh, would go in every every year. Yes. So this was the the compromise so that we had some version of a public domain. Right. And of course, um, you know, the purpose yeah. of copyright is not to burden the uh, recording industry. <laughs> no, of course not. But one of the, the other parts of that law that... Um, that we really, yeah. really love at the Internet Archive is this extension of a, a very obscure part of the Copyright Act already, uh, which is one of the library exceptions um, that allows uh, works in the last 20 years of their um, of their copyright term to be made available by libraries yes. if they are not being commercially exploited. And one of the wonderful things that this law does is it actually just applies that to all pre-1972 sound recordings. Um, So that means libraries really are in a position to preserve works and make them available where they're not otherwise being commercially exploited. So we are really, really happy that that is there and um, are excited to continue to find ways to make those those works accessible. I mean, we still have to figure out what commercially available means. I mean, this turns out to be very difficult <laughs> <laughs> at any kind of scale uh, to to figure out, but um, we are working hard on. Yeah, that. yeah, no, that was the other point that I, I wanted to make, and and it, it is, I think, a really important step in the right direction uh, that was included in that act. Um, that yeah. that I that is is very good for for the Internet Archive and and hopefully for some other projects as well. But I think we'll you know it, it should lead to some some better availability of, of works, even if they are still somewhat under copyright um, that, that, and, and not easily found or accessible. So I think that's very good to see, and I'm glad but not surprised to hear that you guys are working on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of, one of the other things that I thought was interesting about um, you know the event on Friday was just sort of I, I, I was trying to think of how to describe it, but like almost the sense of relief <laughs> that, 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 you know, we actually got to this point um, because I think for many of the people, as you said, you know, m- some of the people there have been fighting on this issue for 30 years. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, as I think uh, Larry Lessig sort of noted in his keynote speech, you know, over and over again, we sort of lost and and by we you know very much do mean the public right i mean the public lost out on access to all yep. of this work That's for right. many years um and so the fact that it's finally here there's this sense of like you know it was sort of this pent up <laughs> excitement about mm-hmm. about these works actually being you know able to be culturally relevant again right um, it yeah for sure i mean i think it's just there's there's tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of new works, you know, and now I think yeah. it's up to us to 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 figure out what to do to do with them, how to display them, how to reutilize them in new sorts of creativity, new projects. Um, you know, one of the other things that really jumped out to me in the in the, the speakers and in the sessions was digging into some of the areas of public domain that maybe the, the, we as copyright folk don't often like think of. Like yeah. one came from a talk from this woman, Amy Mason, who is blind and works for 
um, this group in San Francisco called Lighthouse for the Blind and Visually Impaired, you know, and she really made a case that like, look, when things are in the public domain means they can be translated into Braille, they can be, um, we can do audio dubs of videos, you know, and it really, it was a, it was a, a moment for me at least, you know, because when I think of creativity and works that are going into the public domain, a lot of it is, is incredibly visual, you know, artworks, uh, movies, um, books, of course, that, that most people just read with their eyes, you know, and it's, it was really moving to see her talk about the public domain in terms of improving access to, to people who are blind or visually impaired. And that was, that was a big sort of thing for me. Yeah. And then, you know, one other piece was, was coming from, um, this, this artist, Paul Solelis, yeah. um, who's working on this project, um, queer.archive.org, uh, queer.archive.org. Is that right? Um, basically taking a look at works from 1923 and seeing how uh, people are portrayed. And you can imagine in 1923, there wasn't uh, a lot of queer people <laughs> like coming through in terms of artworks or works, or there are very few artists of color that are, that are uh, you know, available then in archives. And you know, he's done this really incredible project, sort of critiquing that and sort of doing his own interpretation of uh, of a queer perspective on those old works, since at the time, you know, women and queer people and people of color are not the ones that you find in the archives from 1923. Yeah. So I thought those were two sort of really moving things and things that, you know, traditionally in the copyright sphere, you know, wouldn't immediately jump to mind, but are really important in this context as well. Yeah, I think one of the really special things that Paul, um, he is, who has been our artist in residence at the Internet mm -hmm. Archive for the month of January, he's a professor at RISD. Um, so one of the things he did was he went through everything we had from 1923. And not only did he see what was there, he identified what was missing. Mm. Um, and he actively went out and sourced new works from 1923 for us to add wow. to our archives. So that's another thing that, again, sort of this, it being in the public domain means that we as archivists um, can can find the voices that were missing, right? right? He went to um, uh, a local archive, uh, the um, LGBT archives, and he found the first book of uh, openly lesbian poetry, hmm. which was apparently published in 1923. Um, and we then digitized that and added it to our collections, mm -hmm. among a number of other things that he identified for us and um, helped us to add to our collection. So it's been really eye-opening, I think, for us. The other thing he recognized and, and saw was that um, of all of the images we had from 1923, there was not one single image of a, a non-white person. <laughs> wow. Wow, yeah. Yeah. So that it just goes to show, like, in a lot of ways um, that, I mean, I don't, I don't, I mean, I think, Copyright has lots of things to recommend yeah. it, right? So I don't want to be like totally anti-copyright. Copyright is bad, but there are consequences yeah. of locking these things up. And one of those things is sort of the censorship or exclusion of, of certain kinds of voices. Um, and, and I think it's really important to recognize those things. And I think Paul's work was really, really special. And, and I agree with Tim too. Amy's honestly, her, her, uh, 
her presentation made me feel a little bit guilty um, for never thinking about how many presentations um, I have made where there's a slide in the background that I don't tell people what's on the slide. I just think they can see it and therefore um, I can riff over it. Um, And it just had never occurred to me. And I was embarrassed by that. And I was like, wow, I'm I'm so glad that this is opening my eyes to that. And um, so I think there were these moments that um, sort of help us see the ways in which these access to culture is so crucial and so important. And that's why we care about the public domain. It's not like, oh, we hate copyright. It's like, no, actually, we care about culture and and everybody's ability to comment, um, to see themselves reflected. Um, And so, you know, I think we're celebrating that as much as as all of the yeah. Rest of I mean, for those who weren't there, or didn't, didn't see it, you know, part of her presentation was talking about how, you know, I think even she was saying at the event or in an earlier presentation, she, you know, all of a sudden everybody laughs because they see something on a slide that if you're visually impaired, you don't see, you don't get the joke. You don't know why everyone's laughing. Um, and that's, you're like, oh yeah. Like you don't necessarily think about that. Um, one of the other ones that I thought was, was interesting and worth commenting on, um, was uh, Rick Prelinger, um, who mm-hmm. is the yeah. Prelinger Archive, um, and you know he talked about how you know more or less he's he's been collecting um, you know public domain uh, you know videos and sort of stock footage for for many years, and then effectively selling access to it. Um, but but the one of the points he made a bunch of points that I thought were interesting, but one that I thought was particularly interesting was that. You know, effectively, once uh, Brewster Kale convinced him to put all of those works into the Internet Archive and make them available, he actually started making more money from, <laughs> from right. selling access to, ah, the irony. To, to those works. And it's, you know, it's one of those things that people get so up in arms about, like this idea that, like, oh, if it doesn't have copyright, you can't, there's no commercial validity to it. <laughs> you, you, can't, you can't make any money. And like over and over again, I mean, the fact that, you know, people still sell you know uh shakespeare <laughs> shakespeare's works you know and and even that chart that we were talking about earlier that 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 Brewster had in his presentation that Paul Hill put together that shows all of these works suddenly becoming commercially available when they go into the public domain suggests that but but his experience of putting all these works freely available on the internet and finding that that actually drove interest in the commercial opportunities right. to, to to sell access to those works you know, again, is this really interesting and important data point, uh, you know, against the idea that, um, you know, works without strong copyright protection have no commercial validity whatsoever. Uh, well, and I really hope that other archives kind of take that message to heart, because yeah. one of the saddest things in in our world is when, you know, museums will scan or, you know, take really do painstaking work to... to yeah. Um, create these digital reproductions, um, and then they claim a new copyright in those (laughs) works. And um, that's just obscene to me. I I mean, I think, sure, sell the beautiful print. Right. Um, People will buy it. People will absolutely pay money for like a high quality, high res image for some sort of commercial purpose. But the idea of like using new, a new copyright on that um, to lock it down for another whatever 95 years um is really just truly absurd yeah yeah and i think i i think that's not technically allowed in the u.s at least it it isn't um yeah but but other countries frown on that but um i think europe is mm, yeah 
I I don't remember all the specifics, but I think it was like the British Portrait Museum uh, was yes. one that aggressively suggested that their digitization efforts created a brand new copyright, um, as ridiculous as that might be. But yes, that's a a good one to bring up as mm -hmm. an example of people overreacting. And it's, it's, I mean, all of this, I think gets back to this idea that is, you know, pushed by so many of these days of uh, effectively, uh, you know, ownership society that every bit of culture must be owned by somebody. Um, otherwise it doesn't exist or, or has no value or something crazy like that. And I think, or they're just sad little orphans <laughs> starving on the street. <laughs> Nobody's taking care of them. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, well, guys, uh, thanks so much for, for, for taking the time to have this discussion. I, I mean, the, the event on Friday was, was really fun. I'm really glad that I was able to attend. Um, for people who were unable to attend, I believe the whole thing was videotaped and streamed live and I assume is available at the Internet Archive, yes. if not other yes. places as well. It is. And I know, uh, I know Corey put his own talk, which was extremely uh, rabble rousing. Yes. <laughs> his his uh, closing keynote uh, is up on Boing Boing. Yes. Um, and if you if yes, if you want to understand why, uh, how uh, Corey compares certain copyright holders to grifters, um, please go view his talk. <laughs> Good. Um, so sorry, uh, Lila, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh no, no, no. I was, I was done. Uh, okay. yeah, just, uh, <laughs> All uh, right. things, things are up and available. Yes. You can find them on the archive. Um, our YouTube channel will have the whole live stream. Yeah. Um, and, uh, eventually I think we're going to make a whole collection of, of, uh, the photos and whatever from from the event itself as well, uh, including all of those amazing 1923 mugshots. Yep. Um, we set up a photo booth because we found our, our favorite object as the Internet Archive that we found was this uh, amazing book of mugshots um, from, I believe it was uh, Sacramento State Penitentiary, um, where it has these like handwritten crimes. And so we set up a mugshot photo booth and I believe... <laughs> um, those will all go up in a collection as well. So that'll be fun. Nice. Um, very cool. Uh, and uh, Tim, do you have any last minute thoughts on, on the, the wonders of the grand reopening of the public domain? Well, I just hope, uh, I hope it sparks some conversations and I hope we can kind of mobilize to see sort of what's possible now, not only in 2019, but you know, every year now, hopefully Yeah. Uh, for, for project collaborations and for, you know, improving access to these works. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, Agreed. you know, I was going to say, you know, now that hopefully we uh, get to have this kind of thing every year um, yeah. That, yeah. that we can we can start doing more to continually celebrate and encourage um, people to actually use these works and to do more with it. And uh, I don't know if you guys are, are planning to host uh, events again every year, but um, if, if you are... Uh, <laughs> Ask us after we've recovered. <laughs> yeah, sure, <laughs> i got to sure, sleep sure. for a few days. <laughs> Absolutely, totally understood. But uh, I, I hope you do consider it because it really was was a great event and, and I would certainly love to participate uh, in, uh, as an attendee at least uh, in the future and, and potentially we can... Um... Maybe we can have a game night of all of uh, the amazing games that come out of your game jam. There we go. Awesome. That's, that's, that's an idea. I like that. Um, or, or who knows? We'll see what else happens over the, the course of this year. We can see more cool stuff from the 
from the public domain. Um, but but I, I certainly appreciate that, that you guys, I, I know you put in a tremendous amount of work to put together an event that, that came out wonderfully. Uh, so uh, congrats to both of you and, and thank you for, for putting together such a, such a wonderful event. Um, and thank you for then taking the time so soon after the event when I know that you're both recovering uh, to, to come on the podcast and, and talk about it. Thank uh, you. It's a real pleasure. Yeah, thanks for Thank having you. us. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening, and uh, we'll be back next week. Thanks. <laughs>